Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So it's something that I've experienced myself in the last couple of days since I went on a, a three-day gravel camp uh, with uh, Ross and a couple of other of our mates. And uh, after the first day of riding, I can say that I experienced a lot of fatigue. Second day, I was probably slightly better towards the end of the day. And by the third day, I was feeling quite good. And it uh, brought us to the subject of what is fatigue in sport. And Ross and I were chatting a little bit about um, what we can do around this subject, because it is something that not only applies to people like me who are going out and enjoying a gravel ride with a few mates, but it also applies to the very top end of the field of major cyclists, any endurance sport, in fact, it replies. So I thought it was very interesting to kind of run through the basics of what fatigue is and uh, kind of get stuck into some of the, the, the ideas and potentially do another episode on one element of, of fatigue, which we'll get into a little bit later. But before we do that, I know Ross is uh, at a conference at the moment, so we're kind of squeezing this in between sessions. But you've got some caught my eyes, which have uh, been sent to you via our patrons. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I mean, more more caught my eyes than we can deal with, and which is great. I really have enjoyed Patron in the last while, and a notable particular mention to Gareth Davies, to Joshua Stacey, to Ian. They've been very prolific on, on the Patron site, sending in all kinds of interesting links, which I promise we will get to. But for this particular episode, I've chosen a handful of them, and they all share the same theme, which is cheating. Not a, Which is both unfortunate and occasionally amusing as we'll discover one of the best things about the caught my eye by the way is that i feel like i no longer need to try and keep up with things because you are all pointing them out to me and so for instance (laughs) one thing i definitely would have missed had it not been for some patrons is a story a follow-up story on the fishermen who cheated last year by putting weights in the fish that they caught to make them heavier remember we discussed that twice yeah great story so these two gentlemen uh let me just see the names here it was uh jacob runyon and chase kaminsky were very successful fishermen who then won a competition and some eagle-eyed observers said, hang on a moment, we know what a fish looks like when it weighs X, Y, Z, and it's not that. So they cut the fish open and they found lead pellets and it kicked off (laughs) controversy. Anyway, those two gentlemen have now been sentenced, as it were. They pled guilty to a felony charge for cheating in a competition as well as a misdemeanor for unlawful ownership of wild animals. And it's unusual for people competing in sanctioned sports events, fishing sport as it is, to be charged with felony. But in this instance, they could have faced a one-year prison sentence each for the cheating charge and 30 days for the misdemeanor. Because it's essentially theft, isn't it? Yeah, that's, and, that's, yeah. and that's why when we talk about doping in sport, there's been the same argument as sanction them as if they are felons yeah (laughs) and so these guys eventually settled to avoid the jail time but they end up having to pay a fairly hefty fine in the form of forfeiting the boat that they used to use which is worth about a hundred thousand dollars sure they also face a multi-year 
suspension of their fishing licenses. And that is eventually the sanction that these two guys got. So that sounds about fair to me, doesn't it? Yeah, so that closes Because there's the a lot of money involved story. in these fishing competitions. I mean, we make light of it, but, you know, if you watch some of the documentaries on uh, on TV at the moment, there's lots of money involved in fishing competitions and, and money can be won. So cheating can be very uh, profitable. Yeah, so actually on that, I suppose interesting is that is that boat and the sale there of the $100,000, is that going to be used to reimburse the people whose prizes they potentially took as a consequence of their cheating because obviously they were disqualified on the occasion and I don't know how it works in fishing and doping as you know you don't lose your Olympic title if you were caught cheating three months after the Olympics Mm. even though it's very likely you doped at both times you didn't Mm. start after the Olympic Games that you Mm. won (laughs) so I don't know how it works but anyway that closes the loop and I wanted to say thanks to the patrons and also to uh, Nathan Coleman who tweeted me the same link on Twitter. No, oh, thanks. Nathan. We got that on. One. Yeah. Then then an article that uh, was shared with me by both Joshua Stacey and Gareth Davies was on the Peter Ball story. Remember we touched on that, the 800 meter runner from Australia. He's now had two experts groups, independent expert groups evaluate his EPO positive finding. Both of them have come away and said that there's no indication of EPO in that sample. The the controversy really and I'll share the link with you. It's an article from the Guardian. And it basically talks about a potentially massive global impact of the Tepita Ball doping case. And his lawyers are saying that Sports Integrity Australia, which is the anti-doping body, need to drop their probe because they're still doing it. Remember that he failed the test and then the retest was inconclusive. Mm-hmm. So atypical finding as opposed to an adverse finding. And so this article details how it was made public that he'd failed the A sample the B sample didn't confirm the A, so it's not officially a positive test. His reputation has now been tarnished by this. The lawyer says Sports Integrity Australia are being disingenuous in stating they're still investigating. They have nothing to investigate. So it seems like a drama that has got legs because WADA at some point will have to potentially comment on this. Mm-hmm. Will WADA go against one of its own member bodies? Usually not. There have been other cases where WADA has defended to the very end its procedures mm. and so WADA forth. WADA being the ruled anti-doping agency. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you can appreciate if they if they come out and say, you know what, a mistake was made and the agency acted improperly based on poor handling of the sample, the lab didn't do the necessary job, then it significantly undermines what confidence there is in anti-doping. So it really is significant and probably worth a more in-depth discussion than we can provide at this moment. But I just wanted to bring it to your um, attention that there are these experts. You know, here David Chen at the University of British Columbia says, the lab should have immediately recognized issues with the testing and followed the procedure described in WADA's technical document. So that's a that's an allegation, in effect, that the lab hasn't followed the instructions, mm. which is not dissimilar. Like when Shelby Houlihan tried to have her doping case overturned, she made the same claim, and in the end, it was pretty soundly rejected. Yeah, at the, the famous burrito, tainted burrito. Yeah, yeah and then mm. she tried to argue that the lab hadn't followed the rules it set mm. out. That was kind of like a parallel approach. Both, in, in the end, were dismissed. But it's a yeah, it's it's a it's a problem because I think it's safe to say many people who've been burned a lot have relatively little trust in anti-doping anyway that when they do catch someone you need to have a hundred percent confidence that it's a legitimate catch yeah because you can't lose on both sides of the coin you can't have anti-doping failing to catch dopers and then wrongly catching people Mm. who aren't doping 
Now, we don't know yet where the bowl was. Remember we spoke in our pod where we did this, that it's the same as a previous case with the sprinters. There's no evidence that he was, but there's also no evidence that he wasn't. Mm. So you're kind of in like anti-doping purgatory, mm. but you've announced that there's a doping case. That's, no, a that's why the protocols around doping are so strict, aren't they? I mean, yeah, you've got to, to do everything in, in, in line. It's got to be visible because there's so many tricks and things that the dopers have tried over the years that the way they do the protocols and the way that the protocol is done, if it's not followed exactly, there's a hole in the case. Therefore, the case can be dismissed. Right. And it's... I guess it's important that people understand this, but it also, it's, it's, you can, I, can, I can understand why the authorities don't want this widely known, but these tests are not as precise as they would like us to believe. Mm. These tests are not 100% foolproof. You never catch an innocent guy and you never miss a guilty guy. If only they were. And there's no test in the world that performs at that standard. When they then do the tests maybe in improper ways or they overinterpret the findings of those tests, then it, it amplifies that uncertainty and if you proceed into anti-doping cases with more uncertainty than you should have i mean you're you're standing on a foundation made of polystyrene never mind sand mm. you know so that's the problem so uh, i so don't you're know saying that, so, so you're saying that the testing procedure though when you say those tests are not accurate how do we know that they are not accurate because there are, there are not many cases where somebody's proved that the test is done is not accurate unless there's a protocol problem Yes, and so there have been cases that have been claimed to be misreads of the sample. So in the case of EPO, they basically run what's called a gel, and then you look for a little band of protein on this gel. And if that band is there, then it's synthetic EPO. If it's not, you're free. Mm. But sometimes that band is very faint. We, we spoke last time, it's like the COVID test. You know, Two yeah. lines equals stay at home. One line means go out. Mm. Uh, except in these cases, it's not so binary. It's not, yes, you're positive. No, you're clean. You're innocent, negative. So when the lab then either subjectively overinterprets or doesn't follow procedures that could lead to maybe contamination, maybe false positive findings, then it invites this kind of defense. Mm. Now, I, I'm, I'm not making a value judgment on Peter Ball's defense. He, he may be guilty, he may not be guilty. But the problem is, it appears, based on what's coming out now, that he had a valid mm. claim to at least question the way that it was handled. Yeah. And now WADA needs to at some point get involved here. So the researchers are saying things, for instance, that there were obvious phenomena that should have been noticed but weren't. There was an intense band on one of the samples which should have indicated to them that it could not be synthetic EPO. Uh, another group was critical of the poor quality of the standards. Norwegian researchers, one of whom is Eric Boy, who I know from work on the DSD stuff, were similarly critical. They basically said, we find no scientific evidence in this document which pro proves the presence of synthetic EPO in Bowles' urine. <laughs> so, yeah, I, next time we discuss this, maybe we can go into even more detail on the technical elements of the yeah. test, but we should by that stage also have some kind of intervention from WADA, you know what mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. I don't expect them to... Uh, abandon their member federation so that'll be interesting yeah 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 then then another one that was sent to me by let me just find this link here uh wayne adams actually who's been actually quite also regular on patron is an article about paralympic games classification exploitations also in australia now listeners will know in the paralympics you're classified into in a sense degrees of disability so for instance for cerebral palsy there are three categories for running. Mm. It's T36, 37, 38. 36 is most affected, 37 moderately, and 38 least. So 
the world record, for instance, in the T38s, in the 800, I coached a guy actually many years ago in the Olympics, and the world record then was like a 157, 156, it's maybe 152 now. In the T37s, it's three or four seconds slower, and then another three or four. So it benefits an athlete to be classified in the more affected class, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you're going to win medals with slower times. And that's what athletes tend to do. They try deliberately to cheat the system. They fake limps. They deliberately fatigue themselves before they get tested so that their fatigue looks like disability. And so that's happening. So this article that uh, Wayne has shared has got a case in it, for instance, of a cyclist who is injured in an accident and then decides he's going to ride a three-wheeled bicycle because that gets him into the Paralympic Games. But every other week of the year, he's on a two-wheeled bike winning local races in Australia. So he had no place in the Paralympics. Mm. Another athlete who's a swimmer in Australia has been reclassified multiple times. Now, that shouldn't happen. Your CP is not a progressive condition. So Mm. you shouldn't shift from one Is it not slightly subjective, though? It's it's very subjective, and that's the problem. Because it's a loophole that the athletes are able to exploit. Mm. Back back in like 2006-7 when I was coaching Malcolm Pringle, you probably know. Yes, I remember him very well. Um, He went to 4-8. And And in fact, in 2004 he won, I think it was silver in the 1500, gold in the 8. In 2008 he won the gold in in the Beijing. And I think he participated in the SS Senior Champs as an able-bodied yeah, Champs so you can, stage, you can yeah. move up, yeah, right? You, did, you can yeah. certainly yeah. move up. And he had a friend at the time, and I mean, it was, it was terribly sad because this youngster, he, Malcolm would have been in his early 20s, his friend was sort of 16, and running was his life. I mean, he was mm. obsessed with it. But he'd recently been reclassified as a T38, which is the faster category, having previously been a T37. And they, he and his mom, I mean, blessed them. They were just desperate for him to be classified down again because that reclassification meant he wouldn't go to the Olympic Games. Yeah. So they said, how can we cheat the test to go down again? And I didn't know enough to be able to tell them, luckily, yeah. for everyone's sakes. <laughs> but, but subsequently, I supervised a PhD study here in Cape Town that did look at some of those performance metrics in CP, like how do they pace themselves? How does fatigue affect the outcome of the test? So they try... They try to find better methods to assess it, but it, it's very difficult because yeah. you just have to underperform by 10%. You know, and it brings us back. People have said, I oh, evaluate trans women on a case-by-case basis, but, but there's no valid maximal test that you mm. can have confidence in to say, now you're under the target. <laughs> you can test, can you clear a target, but you can't test, can you get under it? Because mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, yeah. it's a completely paradoxical yeah. question that you're trying to ask. Yeah, yeah. So that's the problem. And we know from 2012, there were allegations that the English athletics, UK rather, were doing the same thing. I'm sure it's happening everywhere. Mm, kind of sad because it's, it goes against the very spirit of what the Paralympics is about to some extent. You exactly. feel that it's a celebration of human spirit rather than a, nestle, net, a, net, a very competitive environment. But you realize that for mm-hmm. many of them, it is. Yeah, and exactly. I guess when they get sponsorships and you know, there's money involved, so Correct. I guess that corrupts it. And that's what happens. As it grows, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning it was this festival of human yeah. achievement. Now it's a commercial entity. Yeah. It's got television coverage, it's got massive sponsors, it's got prize money and prestige. Of course, you know, this is what it shows. Whether you're a fisherman, a Paralympic athlete, an elite marathon runner, cyclist, whatever, where there's money, where there's a will, (laughs) there's a way. And where there's there's money, money, there's there's a a will. Exactly. That's the problem, right? Totally. Yeah, and then the final one, Gareth D. sent in, and it's related to what we spoke about last week, a couple of things on the trans issue. Swim England announced that they would be implementing a slightly modified policy compared to world swimming. 
where at every competitive pathway event, sanctioned event, club race and so forth, they would have an open category for those born male and a female category, women's category, closed to female only. So that's another manifestation of what I think is the biological evidence. The other one that came out last week was British Athletics. Remember we did a thing a couple of weeks back on British Athletics bringing out a policy before World Athletics saying we want to have a protected category, but we don't know if we can get away with it legally. Like mm. CYA, cover your, they could. cover your ass <laughs> policy. And everyone at the time <clears throat> said you definitely can. Last week they issued a statement and point three in that, which is like Captain Hindsight. UK Athletics can now confirm it has also received the required assurances from relevant bodies that the sporting exemption in the Equality Act applies to the Gender Recognition Act 2004. So you know, now they know it because, yeah. well, again, it's classic. They've just followed in the wake of World Athletics. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I mean, it's, it's, it's still appropriate, necessary progress for the sake of women's sport, but that's just an update in that regard. And then the last one from GFD is in Canada, their policy in powerlifting is all you have to do is identify. You don't even need to lower testosterone levels. Wow. And so the men's, men's weightlifting, powerlifting coach, a guy called Avi Silverberg, entered as a woman and broke the world record in powerlifting as a okay. form of protest against her. He's, absolutely, he's the other extreme. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So, and I'm sure he did it there. He, he broke it by like 40-something kilograms. Mm bearded big bearded mm. man showed up <laughs> said I'm a, and, and you see that's the thing is you've created the situation there mm. they can't question him it's the same situation that happened in New York Marathon with exactly. the non-binary athletes suddenly everybody was claiming once they saw the prize money and suddenly the winners of the non-binary section started getting faster and faster as the further they went up the field people were claiming they were suddenly non-binary because there was money involved so yeah, it's, once biology is not a test it's difficult to right. yeah, assess that so that, that in fact when I read that A.V. Silverberg article I thought of that non-binary thing yeah. it's exactly the same absurdity where if you if you let people compete based on self-identification then mm. do away with categories I realized the other day like if you have a lightweight in boxing and a heavyweight category in boxing and you don't defend the boundary around lightweights, that's not a celebration of human diversity yeah. and it's, that's just nonsense. Mm. That's what sport becomes when you don't understand that categories are necessary and that they only work when they exclude people. Mm. And so this guy has very effectively shown that up, I think. I'm amazed that they haven't had people post protesting from within that sport. To yeah, say, well, this is ridiculous, which might, which might happen down the line. It's because they've bullied. They, honestly, yeah. they've bullied the woman into silence. I got mm. a really, really good email this week on Patreon from uh, Elspeth, who's a pediatrician, and she said the same thing. She said, even not in, not not limited to sport. She's she's a medical doctor and says, yeah. we just can't speak about this because when you are. There's so much condemnation, criticism, bullying, violence. And yet it's women's sport that should be the one speaking up. <laughs> they should that's be the, the one first people to listen Absolutely. to. Yeah, we talked not, about this not before. Not the least. So exactly. We've, we've discussed it before. <clears throat> yeah. Just wanted to update you on some of those um, yeah. some of those things. As I say, there are, there are others that have come through Patreon. There was a really good discussion uh, in response to my last newsletter about anti-doping and whether dopers deserve a degree of sympathy. Some good stuff there. So go have a look. See, see whether you agree or sure, disagree. Sure, there's with. some good discussion around that. There one. was. I mean, there's some people. Some of you. Some of you are harsh. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's good. Some of you are saying no sympathy ever. Like it's all just playing in Zane Robertson's card, like, in his case, mm. the mental health card, and so on. And I don't, I don't know. I just think. I just think stopers are not a monolith. They're not all Lance Armstrong. Even, even in fact, even Lance Armstrong did it out of necessity. Oh, right? That's in his mind, right? But I still. 
I don't think you can think about a guy like Zane Robertson like you do some others, you know? Yeah. So there's different. Well, that was a podcast we had just before this one, so check it out. Um, it's just interesting. The very uh, sad and tragic case of an athletics doper is the title of that podcast. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, exactly. So let's get on to the subject of the day today. And uh, as I said in the preamble before I um, caught my eyes, the last few days, Ross and I have been uh, riding our gravel bikes around uh, an area near Cape Town. And uh, it'd be interesting because we're both doing this podcast, we end up having discussions about not only the metrics on uh, Ross's pedaling uh, power meters, which was always very interesting. And he still, even he doesn't understand all the metrics coming out of that. <laughs> but one of the interesting things was how our heart rates changed <laughs> over the time that we had that Tom, so I thought, well, it'd be a good chance to like look into the the, the the subject of fatigue and particularly fatigue in sport and maybe more specifically endurance sport, although it applies to powerlifting right down to endurance sport and Ironman distances. And I suppose my first question is, is there a way of defining fatigue? Now, for instance, is fatigue just the body giving up and what is the mechanics around fatigue? Is that is that too broad a question? <laughs> No, it's, it's actually a really important question, and it has quite important historical um, tentacles. <laughs> because if you trace that question back to early exercise physiology, fatigue was very narrowly defined. And it was specific muscle fatigue, and it was defined as a failure of the muscle to produce the necessary force. Or a failure of muscle to exert maximal force. But it was... It was in hindsight, maybe wrongly anchored as an absolute concept at absolute levels. So, for instance, failure. Failure implies I could, now I can't. Yeah. It doesn't really have degrees in between it, as in I'm on the way to getting to the point of can't, <laughs> which is still fatigue. When Matthew van der and van Art were progressively dropped off Pogacar's wheel, they didn't stop. They kept going, but really slowly. If you go look at Van Art, he posted the Strava file, look at his three climbs of the Quaramont and see how much slower he gets over the course of the race. Yeah. That's fatigue. So he hasn't failed. He's just been suppressed. Mm. So it's a volume button as opposed to an off-on button, right? Mm. And it's also become recognized that fatigue is not specifically localized to the muscle. Um, you know, early on in the 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even the 20s, actually, the way this was studied was they'd take rat or mouse or frog muscle and they'd actually take it out of the animal and they'd link it up to a little force transducer and then they'd artificially stimulate the nerve. So mm. in other words, they are the brain. And sure enough, you stimulate it, you stim and eventually it just drops off and it can't contract anymore. So they say, well, now the muscle's fatigued. So that was the concept of muscle fatigue as failure, failure to keep delivering on a six Newton contraction, whatever the, makes sense, right? Right. I think the modern thinking of fatigue is a lot more nuanced and subtle in a number of ways. As I said, one of them is it's regulation, not absolute. It's not failure so much as, um, it depends to find It's failure. a drop off. It's a progressive decline. Mm, yeah. And it's matched, it's, it's always assessed against the demand. Like if you, you watch the Boston Marathon in a couple of weeks, 
3K to go, someone's going to drop off the pack. If he had to sprint at that moment, he would have been able to. So he has the capacity in that moment to go faster, yet he chooses to go slower. Mm. That's not his choice. He would choose to keep up with Kipchoge. Yes. But he couldn't, right? He's fatigued. Mm. So something is... Something has constrained what his performance capability is, and that's what fatigue now is. And it's a highly context-specific thing. What causes fatigue is different on a hot day compared to a cold day at altitude, compared to a cold day at sea level, right. compared to a 10K versus 100 meters. Like You get fatigue in a 100-meter race also, definitely yeah. in a 200. So, so it's a very complex, so it's not, not necessarily too broad a question. It's the most important question, but it invites a very broad answer. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I think about the analogy you give of somebody running in a marathon and then Kipchoge's pulling away from them, what goes in, what I think first of all, yes, there are, fatigue is part of it, but fatigue is, is many different things. There is a cardiovascular fatigue, there is mm-hmm. a leg fatigue, there is a mental fatigue, um, sometimes which we'll maybe touch on that a bit in a, in a few moments to talk about the mental side of things. But so all of those things combine. And what's fascinating for me and as we experience is that. Sometimes you, your body, you perceive this idea that your body is tired, hmm. but your body can sometimes go against what you think will happen to it. In other words, for us, we got progressively stronger on the bike over three days, whereas we should be getting progressively weaker. So fatigue is complex like that because yeah. it doesn't seem to follow a linear path yeah, it's in really, terms of way it's, it, it happens. It's really complex because it's multifactorial. Again, there's, there are cardiovascular components to fatigue. There are metabolic components there's cerebral components there's biomechanics there's thermal there's energy availability and fuel supply so and then and then of course there are the things that are more difficult for us to measure and so sometimes we don't it's in the too hard to measure box but in the last decade i'd say for sure um people have begun to measure things like motivation and reward sometimes you actually fatigue before you exercise (laughs) Yes. Doesn't take doesn't take physical work to fatigue you. So where's that coming from? Yeah. It has to be in the brain. For right? sure. And there are studies, for instance, where people are given mentally fatiguing tasks either before or while they exercise, and sure enough, their performance in the exercise task is worsened by mental fatigue, which tells you that fatigue is a collection of different things. It's not simply I'm too hot. I've got too much phosphate, too much hydrogen ions, no glycogen. You know, that's so there's a reductionist view of fatigue, which is necessary and helpful to understand the components. But when you actually put them all into the same bucket, it starts to become maybe too complex to fully understand, Mm. right? Mm. So that's that's where it does. I mean, it gets incredibly complicated, but really fascinating. Mm. Maybe just take us through. I mean, I'm taking it round down to the very basic levels, but I'm interested to know this. When, how do muscles work? In other words, when they, when they start fatiguing, what is the process in which muscles start to work? In other words, you've got fuel that get into mm. the muscles. Let's say you're running. What is, what is the actual energy process and why does it lead to fatigue in the end? Yeah, okay. So let me, let me start by, actually, this, this might have been a better definition of fatigue at the end or, or a conceptual definition of fatigue. Fatigue is one of the body's most effective ways to maintain homeostasis. In other words, to protect itself. To protect itself. Because your body needs certain things to remain more or less in balance. Not entirely. Like, we can get hotter. We can deplete glycogen. We can lower our pH. We can do things, lower our oxygen content. The body's 
wouldn't say happy with it, but it tolerates that for the sake of exercise. It needed to, otherwise mm. we, we wouldn't survive. We'd fall over the moment we got one degree hotter, half a de- point one degrees hotter, yeah. and then we were food, right? So we needed, we needed to have the ability to have a, a fairly narrow range of change, but at some point we couldn't. And so those fatigogens, I don't know if that, I made that yeah. word up like many years ago, things that generate fatigue, they are very context specific, but fatigue is the process that our body uses to try and avoid ever reaching that point, you know? The point of danger. The point of potential yeah. danger. So with that in mind, before you are fatigued and you start exercising, Bengt Kayser is a very famous physiologist from Switzerland. He wrote a paper called Exercise Starts and Ends in the Brain, which is obvious. <laughs> it starts in the brain because a signal has to go to the muscle from the motor cortex informed by consciousness, decisions, motivation, saying contract. And there I go, now I'm pedaling, now I'm running, <laughs> paddling, swimming, whatever. As a consequence of the muscle work, now all sorts of demands are set at the level of the body. Now we need to get sufficient oxygen to those muscles. We need to get sufficient energy in the form of carbohydrate, glucose, and fat, fatty acids, potentially protein, but that comes much later. But we need to get energy to those places. And then as a consequence of what those muscles do, they generate metabolites like phosphate ions, hydrogen ions, lactate, calcium surpluses, and this is now molecular level muscle stuff. Those things need to be at the very least managed or removed in order for that element of homeostasis to remain the same. They also generate heat. So in order for us to keep our body temperature below 40, we've got to now start sweating and sending enough blood to the skin, but not at the expense of the muscle. Mm. We've got to keep the oxygen levels at at least some minimum level because the brain's not happy without that. So mm. it needs enough blood flow and oxygen supply. So so when you're just taking a step back, so in other words, you've got the oxygen, you've got the glycogen, you've got the ingredients that yeah. require them, and then they're, they're in the muscle. What happens when those, what, 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 what is oxygen doing to the glycogen and therefore then firing the muscle to do what it needs to do? What's that process? Yeah, so it's not, oxygen is not acting directly on the contraction of the muscle, but what it's doing is it's, enabling the metabolism to occur without the formation of excessive byproducts. So the the rate, so let's say I'm running 800 meters Mm -hmm. under two minutes as opposed to 21 kilometers, which is for some two hours, right? The rate at which I'm running or the exercise intensity dictates the metabolic energy demand from the muscle. So an 800 needs a lot of energy really quickly. A 21k or marathon needs less energy at a longer rate. It needs to last longer. The latter, which is the endurance activity, can get that energy from fats and oxygen. The former really is almost exclusively from the oxygen, not oxygen, sorry, carbohydrates and fats. The former, the short distance stuff is carbs. And in order for that to happen, we need high flux or flow of glycogen in the muscle glucose from the liver to the muscle and it has to be in fact in in the case of an 800 it's almost exclusively muscle glycogen but it needs to turn that over very quickly because it needs atp quickly atp is adenosine triphosphate so that's the energy currency of the cell so the muscle the muscle needs atp because in order for the contraction and relaxation of muscle, ATP has to be cleaved in half to provide the energy for that ah, process. Right? That's what so that's trying to get you right. Okay. Yeah, so that's the energy. So ATP is literally the the, the 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 moment of energy use. Yeah, it's kind of like the final transaction. Right. ATP, three molecules of phosphates on an adenosine. You cut off one of those as that bond is broken, energy comes out. It's like going to the bank and. <laughs> 
handing over your check or what is it? I mean, is it, who it, does that? Can now? we say what is that energy? <laughs> I'm sorry to sound so pedantic, but it's <laughs> yeah, it's 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 literally energy. I mean, it's mm. it's 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 measured in joules. So it's like a mini. Kind. It's almost like a mini atom. That gets split and therefore sends out some energies. The, the process of that splitting yeah. is the energy. Okay, yeah, right. exactly. Okay. As, as a bond is broken, energy is released. That's, right. the, okay. that's the concept okay. here. And that energy yeah. is required I've never understood at that. the yeah. level of okay. muscle contraction in order for the muscle to continue to contract. And in fact, more importantly, relax. When people die and they no longer have the ability to produce ATP, their muscles go into rigor mortis, right? Mm. That's because ATP is depleted. And so the muscles contract and can't relax any longer. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and that never yeah. happens in exercise, even mm. though it sometimes feels like it does. <laughs> anyway, where were we? So, okay. So, brain signal, muscle starts working. Mm. There's a cost to that work from the muscles. It's energy requirements, yes. and that energy is coming from ATP. But that ATP is the result of glycogen and, and fatty acids and oxygen. glucose. Oh, not necessarily. And the, oxygen. the oxygen is there. Is that it's kind of like the final electron acceptor in what's called the oxidative pathway. So there is oxygen's right at the end. You know, it's kind of like a series of these molecules hand their electrons down something and each stage each time that electrons handed atp is formed right and that atp then obviously is used when the muscle contracts but that oxygen is the final electron acceptor in that pathway so okay. that's that's metabolism zero one zero yeah. zero one not one oh one for us for that's us it. normal for us but, uh, um luddites that's that's a good explanation <laughs> yeah but it's kind of like if there's an analogy it's almost it's almost like a shopping center opens for work and all of a sudden everyone floods in there. That's people, you know, and they all start making these transactions. They're paying for products and there's this exchange. Now those products have to get out of the shopping mall. So, yeah. so at the muscles, it's the same thing. It's people go in and in other words, there's a signal open for business. Now all of a sudden muscle contractions required. That muscle contraction generates phosphate. When we, when we cleave ATP, it generates calcium ions, hydrogen ions, etc. And also, are, are, they, are they described, are they waste products? Some of them are, yes, and some of them have to be eliminated. Some of them have been wrongly described as waste. So, for instance, lactate. Lactate is produced when we rapidly mm. metabolize glycogen. Remember, glycogen is the storage form of carbs in the muscle. It gets converted to glucose. That glucose is then broken down in a series of reactions in what's called glycolysis. The end product of glycolysis is pyruvate. Now, if there's sufficiently low flux that pyruvate can now enter what's known as the oxidative part of the metabo metabolic cycle if there's not the pyruvate is very quickly converted into lactate right and that lactate is really important because it facilitates the production of atp very quickly and it becomes a fuel source of its own so then it's released from the muscle where it's taken up and used as fuel elsewhere so it's not actually the bad guy Yes, because it used to be the bad guy. Or yeah, and I mean, again, or... it goes back to that history. Like when they first did it with frog muscles and they measured this fatigue occurring, they said, well, what's happening? Yeah. We can measure this molecule. It's lactate. Lactate causes fatigue. And that kind of got stuck. It's a zombie. It's a zombie idea yeah. in exercise science. You know, it's long dead, but it keeps wandering around looking for <laughs> victims. So, so, yeah, it's not lactate that causes the fatigue. It's yeah. the hydrogen ions. It's the phosphate ions. It's potentially calcium and sodium and potassium and all sorts of other things happening right deep inside the muscle cell. But lactate actually is, is fuel. Yeah. 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 Okay. So now we discussed the process. So how does training make us more give us more of the, that processes, yeah. give us more chance of making those processes? Right. In other words, making the, the muscle more efficient. Okay. So... 
from first principles again, sorry to repeat this for the third time, but it's, it's important. Signal from the brain, muscle starts doing the work, it's contracting, that's how you're exercising. Mm. The cost of muscle contraction is heat generation, metabolite production, substrate use, carbs and fats. Mm-hmm. If we only think of those three things now and do that reductionist thing that I <laughs> just a few minutes ago said we shouldn't, but let's do it for the sake of illustration. If we couldn't dissipate heat, we'd overheat. Mm-hmm. If we couldn't use substrates like fats and carbs at a slower rate, we would too quickly deplete them. That also causes fatigue. And if we couldn't get rid of the metabolites like hydrogen and phosphate, we would fail at the muscle level. So there are three, in a, in a sense, bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. In, this, in this little story, three little pigs. There's heat, there's um, metabolites, and what was the third one I said? Substrates, energy supply. What training is doing is it's diminishing, it's doing two things. One is it's diminishing how many of those are formed. So it's, it's making the, the problem smaller and it's enhancing our capacity to deal with the problem. So let's take heat, which I think is the simplest one. As we get fitter, our production of heat at a given intensity goes down because our capacity is up. So now I'm cycling at 220 watts. Previously it was 80% of max, now it's 70% of max. That means it's less hard, therefore I generate less heat. Does that make sense? Right. Plus, why, why do you produce this heat through training? Because you become, I think, more efficient. Right. It's known that the, one of the best predictors of heat production is what percentage of max that you're functioning at. So a 10K runner is storing more heat than a marathon runner per minute. Yes. The, the marathon runner's got a different problem. He's got to do it for two hours and five minutes. The 10K guy only 28 minutes. Right. But the rate of heat storage is higher than the 10K guy because he's running at a higher intensity. And it's not absolute intensity, it's relative intensity. So... You know, you could run a 10K in 55 minutes and someone else is running it in 35. You'd both be producing heat because you'd both be more or less at the same relative intensity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But then what's happening on the other side of that particular equation is that your heat loss capacity goes up because fit people have got better capacity to lose heat through sweat. Their blood flow redistribution works more effectively so they can bring that hot blood to the surface of the skin and then lose it to the environment. And they can also sweat, as I said, they sweat more. So the end result is that when you are fitter... In other words, fitter people yeah, sweat more. Yeah, and your plasma volume goes up. In fact, one of the earliest adaptations to exercise is within a day or two of starting, your plasma volume goes up. You literally make more blood, you know, the fluid that the blood cells... Because there's in. a signal from the brain going, we need a bit more of this. Yeah, there's yeah. a signal the moment you start sweating and says, okay, we're losing fluid, make more, and you overcompensate and you end up with more than you started with. So as the plasma volume increases, your capacity to dissipate heat goes up because you've now got more fluid to send to the compartments for heat loss plus more fluid to lose Mm. so the end result is that if you say and and this is true of heat adaptation day one you maybe make 30 minutes on a hot day day 15 60 minutes Mm. before you are overly exhausted or fatigued because you just get better at it now the same is true of metabolite production right let's say it's your 10k guy and he's running at three minutes a k that is initially very stressful because it's a high intensity relative to max. As a consequence, he's producing metabolites at rate X. As he gets fitter over six months, six, 12 months, the intensity now at three minutes a K is less than X. 
And so the metabolite production is lower. Right. Plus, we get more capillaries, for instance, that are now sitting at the muscle. So that means we've got more. So when you say more capillaries, in other words, do capillaries actually grow yeah. and develop? In other words, that network of blood vessels yes. actually grows within the muscle when the muscle gets stronger. Yeah. So oh. that little. So you get more delivery. Yeah. So you get actually more delivery and removal. Wow. It's it's like it's like building more roads to a dump site. Yes. Now we can get more trucks in and out. It's not just in. It's in because we want to get the fuel, we want to get the oxygen, so that helps. But then once the metabolites are made, we want to get it out. And so that also helps. It's fascinating to do a study where you can actually see potentially the growth of capillaries within muscle. I'm, I'm sure it's sure been done. done I mean, that, yeah. It's driven by these growth factors that <clears throat> are stimulated by, for instance, a drop in the oxygen pressures. And that's what happens when we exercise the CO2. Mm. It's not CO2, so it's a CaO2. The arterial oxygen content goes down. That drives growth literally right. and so now we get is that more... human growth hormone no these are growth factors growth factors okay. yeah human growth hormone would be lying if i said i knew exactly what the mechanism mm. was but it would then stim it would stimulate growth through growth, the growth yeah, factors okay. right, yeah. So yeah these are yeah. is at an even more molecular level than a hormone okay yeah. so end result is we produce metabolites at a lower rate than before training and we are able to remove those that are produced at a higher rate the end result is, and you can use lactate's often used as a marker for this is you put a guy on a bike at 250 watts you measure the lactate sure enough straight line up from the moment he starts or she starts all the way up to the ceiling they stop at a lactate level of 10.5 yeah six months later that same power output what did i say 250 watts yeah they no longer have an increase in lactate it actually plateaus because now 250 is below that lactate, let's call it threshold, where mm. you get uncompensated production of lactate. Because mm. now your production of lactate is lower and your ability to use it as fuel is higher. So you mm. benefit on both sides of the coin, as it were. Does that make sense? Yeah, so is it, is it fair to say then that the body's development, in other words, it's, it's adapting continually to training, mm. is, is, a, is a, a function of compensating for a, break, a breakdown of the body, because training breaks down the body. Yeah. The body then, then compensates to then avoid that breakdown continuing and therefore you get stronger. So there's this continuous process down of breakdown compensation, breakdown compensation. And it never, what's, what I find fascinating and, and miraculous is the fact that that repair job, repair job is stronger than the initial mm. muscle, which is, I mean, it's, it's miraculous. Yeah, and it's <laughs> not just muscle. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. It's ha and, and, and actually... The final piece of this whole adaptation to training puzzle that we didn't mention is obviously stuff's happening at the level of the muscle. We've discussed less heat production, more heat removal at the skin. At the level of the muscle, fewer metabolites produced at a lower rate after training, and also those metabolites are removed better. Yeah. But now in the meantime in the brain, the interpretation of the signals, because remember every one of these things that happens is a signal back to the brain. Yes. Am I getting too hot? Oh, my muscles sore, the phosphate levels. I'll talk to you in a moment about some really cool studies that were done a while back on blocking that signal back to the brain. And if you do that, no, there's no pacing strategy. So yes. what the brain's doing is it's taking into account all these feedback signals from different systems, mechanics, tendon load, muscle load. You know, that's the achiness you feel in your joints mm. when you've done a hard marathon or a long run. That's being communicated to your brain. And then your brain is interpreting that. And over time, the interpretation of the brain to those stimuli changes as well for the better 
So you're now able to handle that feedback in a way that you wouldn't have done before. So it's changing at the level of the muscle, it's changing at the level of the skin, it's changing at the level of the heart, the lungs, and of course the brain, which is where so exercise all of those, starts and ends. That's the key bit from Kaz, it's it ends in the brain also. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's what I find amazing is that, I mean, I guess it's impossible to say how it necessarily does that because you're, you're saying that the brain is getting feedback, obviously neuromuscularly, Back yeah. to it saying, right, we've got more capillaries here, therefore you can now make us work, we can work a bit harder without you slowing us down. Yeah. Is that kind and of the, a simplistic like way of putting the, it? The brain doesn't necessarily know that there are more capillaries there. But it's but getting it a knows, sign saying there are more capillaries there. It knows that there. the consequence of having more capillaries there is lower levels of phosphate, lower levels of hydrogen ions, right. higher levels of oxygen content <laughs> in, the, in the blood. And that's the signal that it's able to respond to. So... In the end, it acts knowing, but it may not necessarily so it's know a the chemical, why. Is it a chemical response? Some, some of them are, yeah. Right. So, for instance, okay. okay, so Marcus Amine is a physiologist from the US, I think he was of the Utah, and they did these really nifty studies. I mean, amazing stuff. Mm. There's a couple. In one of them, they made these cyclists do these 5K time trials on the bike, and they infuse either placebo or they infuse something called fentanyl, which is a very powerful painkiller. Yes. And fentanyl, I mean, fentanyl is really dangerous. There's a crisis of fentanyl well, in the, the US. it's the Michael Jackson drug, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So what they do in this instance is they infuse fentanyl, and then they see how these cyclists pace themselves. In other words, they don't feel pain. They don't feel anything coming back from the periphery. It blocks what are called the type 3 and 4 afferents. So the afferent meaning to the body, right? Mm-hmm. Back to the brain. And then they, what, what happens is, it's amazing, they measure muscle activation. So that's the signal that the brain sends to the muscle. In this case, it would be the quads. And they measure the power output, obviously, on these trials. And what they find is when we got fentanyl, you go off like a house on fire. It's like there's nothing there to stop you. Mm. So they start, like, let's say, at 330 watts for the first kilometer. And then they keep going, 330 watts, 330 watts. But sure enough, eventually the, the taxman collects. You know, physiology the physiology wins. The physiology wins. And then mm. they drop off a cliff. So where the house was on fire to start with, by halfway, the house is ashes. And so now all of a sudden the power puts way lower than right. it is in a placebo trial. So in a placebo trial, you get this classic sort of fast start, a little bit of a drop, and then a kick at the end. Mm. Right? You know that. Everyone yes. listening to this knows that's how you pace yourself. Yes. First K, super hard. Middle part of the 10K, I'm dying, I'm slowing down. 10, 1K to go, now I'm sprinting. Right. Okay, so yes. classic pacing strategy. With fentanyl, it's completely messed up. It's super fast at the beginning, and it's way low at the end, and there's no capacity for an end spurt. Sure. So what fentanyl has done, this is the model that they ended up proposing, is it's blocked important information that the brain needed to adjust the pacing strategy. And in the absence of that information, the brain couldn't manage the effort appropriately. And then eventually physiology wins. And then what they did in that study is they they rigged the participants up to this device that measures how much force the quad can produce. Mm -hmm. But instead of allowing the person to tell their quad to contract, they played the role of the brain. The way you do that is you use a magnetic stimulator on the femoral nerve. Mm-hmm. which is nobody's idea of fun. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> you basically stimulate their nerve and then you measure how much the quad twitches in response to a magnetic external stimulus. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Sure enough, and you tell me, if I do that before and after exercise, what do you think happens after compared to before? Well, after exercise, imagine that when you stimulate it, it's going to, well, it's, if, it's, if the brain's not involved, then it would do the same as it's always done. Right, so what if I told you that after exercise, in any condition, that force drops by about 30 to 35%. 
Well, that doesn't make sense because if the brain's not involved, why doesn't the muscle just continue to... Well, although it's maybe fatigued then. Correct. Exactly. Right. Yes. So okay. this is really important because what this right. tells us is that fatigue sits in the brain and it sits at the level of the muscle. There is such a thing as peripheral fatigue. The muscle mm. does get tired, mm. independent of the brain. But the brain remains in control of it. So this study by mine was so interesting, I think, because it showed that there must be both. Does this make sense? Yes, so, okay. And, and, and yes. you know, when I did my PhD, it was on fatigue for, for the interest, for the sake of disclosure. <laughs> we, we started off, I started off with this model that fatigue was all in the brain. Yes, and we the, gov- the governor, the, the central governor. Yeah, and we, when I say we, at my supervisor was Tim Noakes, and there was a couple of others in the institute where I studied. You've written a book on this, haven't you? Uh, or, you, or, you, or no, Tim Noakes wrote a book on this. Tim Noakes has included this in, yes, his, in one of his, his books. One yeah. Of his books yeah. yeah, but you wrote a book on running where you talked a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, it was it was my PhD, so it was like for six years of my life. This was well, four, five years, whatever it was. Mm. This was the thing, right? And we, we started off rejecting the notion of peripheral fatigue. We said, that's not real. That's an artifact of how you measure. Peripheral fatigue meaning? Meaning fatigue that resides in the muscle. Like in other words, the, the brain muscle is the, itself. Right, so the muscle so doesn't give up, the brain does the head off. <laughs> right. And the brain is no longer in the picture. The muscle fatigues. Right. Now, that, that had been shown. I mean, like if you make someone do a sustained two-minute contraction, mm. If you make them do a sustained two-minute contraction, you will find that by the end of that, the force is way down and the muscle is trembling and vibrating and it burns. You, you know, all know this feeling, yes. right? Weight, weight training, you, you see this much quicker than you would mm. in endurance. Go and lift a too heavy a weight, just mm. do it safely, and you'll know exactly what I mean. There's no doubt that there are metabolic changes in the muscle that compromise its ability to contract. That's the calcium I mentioned earlier. Mm. You know, normally contraction requires the release of calcium from these things called sarcoplasmic reticulum in the organelles in the muscle. Mm-hmm. With fatigue, that calcium release doesn't happen as quickly. What's it's rather it's the uptake of reuptake of calcium that doesn't happen. Mm. So there's definitely a calcium component. There's a sodium potassium pump mm. component. There's a hydrogen ion, a phosphate ion. So there's no doubt that in the, at the level of the muscle, there is fatigue. Mm. And that's what Aman and co were showing. They were stimulating these guys after cycling and showing a 30 to 35% drop. What was amazing about that is that they did another study where they had them go at 15% oxygen. So that's simulated almost altitude, hypoxia. It's, I mean, it's not, not quite, but it's, it's the concentration of oxygen is lower. So less oxygen, normal oxygen, high oxygen, 100% oxygen. Sure enough, what you find there is that in high oxygen, they do this 5K time trial much faster than in low. They activate much more muscle than in low, but they still end up with 30 to 35% drop-offs in muscle fatigue, wow. muscle function at the end. So the muscle itself so, just fatigues no matter what, most oxygen is right. involved. Yeah. So whether you did hypoxia, normoxia, or hyperoxia, the degree of peripheral fatigue as assessed by this twitch method or muscle fatigue yeah muscle fatigue let's call it that let's call it that was always 30 to 35 percent so they said all right clearly there's pacing because there was if if you looked at the emg the muscle signal to from the brain to the muscle hyperoxia that signals higher the muscle knows there's more oxygen it knows that it can get away with contracting more muscle because the cost is now not going to be as severe because of the more oxygen make sense yes but the thing that's constant by the end is the degree of muscle fatigue measured at the quad. And so they, they suggested that the pacing strategy was regulated specifically to ensure that only a certain amount of peripheral fatigue was ever achieved. Right. Then when they did the fentanyl study, and I'm going to try to close this particular circle, 
Remember I said to you, fentanyl, they go off like a house on fire and then they completely bomb out at the end of the trial. In that trial, the muscle fatigue was almost 50%. Right. So if you block the signal back to the brain and the brain can't pace itself appropriately, then you cause failure of peripheral fatigue regulation. Right. So now, now it's, it's gotten even more complex because now we've got fatigue and pacing during exercise controlled by the brain in response to the muscle but to control the muscle at the same time. Right. Yes. So it's a, that's why it's I, a combination of both. That's why I call it a regulate. Fatigue is a regulated right. and a regulatory process. Right. Yeah. You, so you, when people always say, well, you know, it's all in the head. It, yes, it is, but it's not entirely all in the head. No, and that was right. the oversimplification that we mm. were guilty of making. And I think, mm. you know, we were critical when I started of the peripheral fatigue guys mm. for not acknowledging the brain. I sometimes fear that we made the mistake of swinging the pendulum in the exact opposite direction and not recognizing that there was muscle. Mm. <laughs> we became all brain, they were all. Mm. And it was frustrating. I remember in the last couple of years of writing up my PhD, I'd go to these conferences and like these guys were doing these, like Maman and co, doing these unbelievably cool studies and never mm. acknowledging this concept of regulatory pacing. Mm. Which, and, and I'm sitting there thinking like, what we're saying. Regulatory being mind. Yeah, regulatory. Not, yeah, brain. 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 Yes, yes. I'm sitting in the audience thinking, like, what we've written, Noakes, uh, Ziggs, and Alan Sinclair Gibson, myself, Jordan Swart, what we've written could pretty much explain their findings. But they're not doing that. Yeah. And so the two, the two sides never met. You know, it was like <laughs> we were digging a tunnel from opposite sides of, <laughs> of mm. the English Channel and then past each other somewhere under the sea. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. it was frustrating. Like, we should have. We should have been a little bit better, I think, and so should they, mm. of recognizing the complementary nature of what we were doing, mm. and then we'd have a more complete understanding of it. So do you think there's more more research in that space? I don't know. I mean, uh, it, I mean it's, <laughs> despite the fact that you'd spent six years of your life doing that, it sounds like there are some, it's a continuously, it's, it's research can continue here. Yeah, it is, but I mean, I, th- I think it's, I wouldn't say it's stalled, but it certainly, mm. it certainly started to, if you'll excuse the use of it, the, the research started to fatigue as well. Mm. Because eventually, once you recognize that fatigue was this complex manifestation of how the brain was sending signals to the muscle, receiving signals back, and then regulating activity, you, you basically said, well, now we've got to start measuring the brain. And you couldn't. No. It was too complex and too difficult. And there were some attempts. Like there was a, the, the, the Scandinavians were really doing cool stuff on heat. Um, and in fact, heat's probably the best model to explain this. So we'll, we'll do this little lesson now. Um, when you exercise in hot conditions and I force you to say, run at 12 Ks an hour or cycle at 250 Watts for as long as you can. And it's 40 degrees. You almost always fail voluntary exhaustion at a core temperature in and around 40 degrees Celsius. That's kind of like the human set point for exercise failure. Some people have gone beyond that. Salazar, for instance, when he won that Boston, I think it was Boston, Duel in the Sun, right? Do you remember that dress in 1982, for some reason, I think. Um, Tom Simpson, the cyclist who collapsed and died. Jim Peters in the 1954 marathon in Vancouver. They were all measured as having, certainly Peters was, temperatures well above 40. So you do get this phenomenon. But for most healthy people, we don't go beyond 40 by much. We stop. We say, geez, I'm too, I can't anymore. Because the brain's brain's saying stop. Yeah, and in fact, what the Scandinavians, a guy called Lars Nybo, was finding back then was that when you made them do this, by the time they got to the 
sort of 45th minute and they started to get near 40 degrees Celsius, they started to lose coordination. Mm. They started to be dizzy. They were incoherent. They would slur their words. They didn't know where they were. So that's clearly implicating something in the brain. Mm. Think about, um, remember Gabriel Anderson in the Los Angeles Olympics, 1984, Swiss runner, Mm. who staggered around the track, took about five minutes to do the last 400. Famous images, those. Classic case of heat stroke. So that's what happens when our brain overheats. So, okay, cool. So that's the model now is that the hot brain fails. Mm. But what we were saying back then was that maybe there's regulation before the brain gets hot. So a guy called Frank Marino had found that smaller runners could pace themselves more evenly in the heat than bigger runners. The reason is that when you're small, you have a higher capacity to lose heat relative to, produ- relative to producing it. Yeah. So you could stay cool. That's why being small is so beneficial for endurance athletes. Yeah. Then I did my first study, and I guess I was lucky actually that it was on heat because it gave us quite clear direction, is that if you make people do a 20K cycling time trial in hot and cold conditions, within the first 10 minutes of a 35-minute trial, they will slow down in the heat. They look no different. Their skin temperatures, their body temperature, their heart rate, their RPE are the same, yet they slow down. Mm-hmm. So, okay, if, if, if heat was causing the hot brain to fail, why did you slow down when you were only 38 degrees? What's the point? Yeah. And that's quite clearly showing that we regulate muscle activation based on knowledge that if we didn't, we would overheat. Makes right. sense, right? Yes. And subsequently, that's been largely confirmed, I think, that, that people will slow down. It's the same with oxygen. If you put someone at altitude and they don't know it, within the first few moments of exercise, they go slower than if they were at sea level. Yeah. They don't know why, but they just do because mm. the brain's smart and it knows something's different. <laughs> I'm going to be more conservative here. And it so, had to be in order for them to finish. So the million dollar question for me, and maybe this is my final question to you around this, do we know what percentage the brain controls that process versus the muscle? And if we don't, is it are we all on different sliding scales? In other words, mm. does an elite athlete have the ability to push further into that zone where the brain is yeah. almost switched off to the muscles or does somebody like me who can only who starts to feel tired when my temperature gets to 39 or my metabolites are at a certain level in other words can you shift that and is there a difference between what elites can shift versus normal people or yes average I'm, people <laughs> almost certainly yes but i would be cautious to reduce it to just the fact that elites can tolerate homeostatic discomfort or disturbance for longer. In other words, I'm saying can they push into that yeah. more than more than a average runner? So taking away that, for that, I mean that is the million dollar question yeah. in a way. Um I, I think I think that the elites are elite for two reasons and it's because they benefit on both sides. So they don't deplete substrates. They don't mm. burn carbs at the same rate as uh, as an amateur hacker like like us. They don't produce the metabolites that cause muscle problems. They don't generate the heat that we would generate. Yes. They also so lose more efficient. They also lose the heat. They also dispose of those metabolites and they also can continue to supply substrates for longer, you know, because they rely so much on fat burning where we would rely more on carbohydrates. So at the at the level of a brainless body, they are already better. Yeah. That's right. But then when you add the brain to the system, it makes them doubly better because that's where I do think that there's probably something that's not yet been measured where they are just able to tolerate disturbances and get closer to that ceiling. Mm. In the end, they still can't. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, you'd be able to find any person who's hungry and motivated enough and you'll go break Kipchoge's world record. It doesn't happen. Or also, athletes would die. Well, exactly. That's what there would was happen. No they, would, they would collapse well before that. You can't, right. you know, it's like, to use a morbid example, you can't commit suicide by holding your breath. Yes. Because eventually the brain will say, no, no, this is not happening on our watch. And you'll be forced to gasp. Yeah. That's not to say accidents don't happen, like shallow water drownings and so forth, but that's a different phenomenon, right? Mm. Mm. So, so the point is, I guess, is that it's everything makes them elite. They're bet on, it's not two sides of the same coin, it's three sides of the same triangle. It's, mm. it's the creation of fatigogens, the removal of those fatigogens, and the interpretation of those. And so it's arguably going to be the case that they do get closer. They are able to get nearer, but that's... You, you could find a very highly motivated 90-minute half marathon athlete who probably gets as close as you saw uh, a 58-minute half marathon right. athlete get yeah. just at 50% just the physiology is different, yeah. different speed. The reason why I asked it is that sometimes uh, having read up about this and, and been running and cycling and that sort of thing where you get to a point of fatigue, I say in my brain, well, this is my brain telling me that I am – that I'm tired, but actually I can go more, and therefore I push myself harder, knowing that physically I I can do more. Yeah, and is it is it a fair essential for me to make? Yeah, and I think people should understand that when they go out and train, what they are actually training, aside from the muscle, the lungs, the heart, the blood, the thermoregulation, all the things we've spoken about, what they're actually doing also is training their perception of what it feels like. They're yeah. learning pain. And they're learning where that limit is. Yeah. And over time, you'll learn that that limit maybe is a little further away from where you thought it was. It's yes. a little higher than where you thought it was. But it's not, it's, it's not so far over the horizon that you can just ignore that it's there. Because, again, if you... Like, we were out at the weekend and we we're 40k from home. There's, no, there's nothing there. There's just, there's just sheep and blue cranes and <laughs> dirt roads, right? And so, That's about when I said, I don't think I can do this today, yeah. lads. And you said, you have to because you've got yeah, fully there's no choice. So there's no Uber out here. So That's here right. we go. And so the thing then is, if you, if, if you started to feel like the first signs of maybe your blood sugar levels are dropping or your muscle glycogen is low, is weakness in the muscles, dizziness, a little bit, you, you know what it's like to yeah, bonk. Yeah, I was there. If you didn't pay attention to that and you said, look, this is all in my mind, 5K later, you'll be lying on the side of the field seeing stars. Yes. So you have to pay attention to it. Now, in this instance, paying attention to it is eating and drinking to get that sugar up again. Mm. If you start developing the signs of heat stroke, and you see this in marathons in the Summer Olympics and so on all the time, the Commonwealth Games, remember Callum Hawkins, for instance, mm. those athletes know that they're in real impending trouble. But the thing is, they don't slow down because they're in silver medal position or whatever it is in the marathon. So they say, just got to go 7K more. Sure enough, 3K later, they're lying in the shade on the side of the road with people asking them, are they okay? Yeah. So, so we, we, we can consciously override those signals, but we might not always be advised to do that, is, the, is I guess the point. you know. But, but back to the elites, we, we did some really <clears throat> cool studies on Kenyans uh, in 2017, 18. Yes, I think I came to your lab in Stenomosh. Yeah, and you filmed fascinating this. Yeah, it was to watch. really cool watching a guy run 24K an hour mm. on a... Having never been on a treadmill before, honestly, the first day those guys got on the treadmill, they looked like newborn giraffes. Yeah. Like all and watching the them in harnesses, so when they and failed, they, they would just pull up on yeah. the harness. So you see top-class runners running absolutely yeah, to max. Yeah, I mean, that treadmill's going 24 and a half, 25 and a half. If you stumble and fall there, you'd be shot through the back wall. <laughs> and so they were so skillful that they managed to go from like newborn baby giraffe to 24 can max tests. 
And what we were measuring in that study that was novel was cerebral oxygenation. So in other words, what's the blood flow and the oxygen supply to the brain? And we found that in, and this is where it gets tricky, because what do you compare an elite Kenyan to? Like this, you know, we didn't have access to like the top 10 elite mm-hmm. Caucasian, European, North American runners. So, mm-hmm. so you don't know whether it's the elitist performance capability or whether it's a Kenyan ethnicity thing. thing. And, and yeah. in the case of the Kenyans, it was because going back five generations, they've lived at altitude in the Great Rift Valley. Mm. And one of the things that altitude gives you is very low exposure to oxygen, even from the womb. Mm. Not your, not just you, but your mother and her mother and her mother. <laughs> so for generations, they've got this low oxygen exposure in the, in the womb. And what we then ended up proposing is that they are able to tolerate a much greater degree of cerebral deoxygenation. In other words, low oxygen to the brain, because it might be something that they've acquired through ah. their lives and the lives you're of saying their that they can operate with lower oxygen at a higher that's level. What, that's what the indication sure. was. And there were some Amazing. studies where you take like a 16 to 17 minute 5K runner and you take a 13 minute 5K runner. I mean, the 16, 17 is good, but the 13 is world class. And yeah, the 13 minute guys, the sub 60 half guys, they're able to get to lower oxygen levels at fatigue, at the same, the same moment of saying, I can't go anymore. Their oxygen levels were lower than in the in the in the uh, non-elite group, and whether that's just a function of that's what made them elite, whether it's a function of their high altitude ancestry, I guess is the is the question. But that's to answer your, your question. It's it's probably everything all at once. They're able mm. to go beyond. So first of all, they can get to twenty three k an hour with the same deoxygenation that I'm at at fifteen k an hour. <laughs> yes. So that's difference one. Difference two is they then handle that deoxygenation better, so they can actually get closer to to mm. what might be a, a theoretical limit. So, I, yeah, I guess the the point in the end is that fatigue is everything. Mm. It's context specific. It's at the level of the muscle. It's at the level of the brain, and it's the link between the muscle and the brain. But if you if you understand that training is an act of physiological change and your psych- no, I don't want to call it psychological but perceptual in response to physiological mm. maybe there's a 5% that you can unlock that you mm. would otherwise have thought was an insurmountable wall yeah yeah fascinating now there's obviously much more to this and I'm, I think we're going to probably look at doing another a podcast because there's a very new way of talking about this and that's all about fatigue resistance which we can't really get into today because it is a subject all on its own so yeah. we'll look at doing a, a podcast around that later but uh, Ross thank you much for that I think it's uh, I think it's interesting just to break down the physiology of that and understand how those two combinations work because I think there's a lot of misconception first of all from those who think it's all about the brain mm-hmm. and from all of those who think it's just about the muscle it is yeah absolutely about both yeah that's yeah. that's the point you know and it took us well it took me the whole of my phd before i realized <laughs> that and it doesn't make any sense to look at only one side of that and say oh, well this is where fatigue this is why fatigue happened because yeah. you can in a lab you can design a study to get fatigue to be almost all central as in brain regulated or all peripheral and in fact one last study a guy called les ansley who graduated here at uct and then went over to the uk he did a really neat study where he had guys do 4Ks, 20Ks, and 40K time trials. And he measured two Is things. This on the bike or the road? On the bike. On the bike, yeah. 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 Measured two things. One was that method I mentioned earlier where you stimulate the femoral nerve to, to basically do the job of the brain. And you measure peripheral fatigue by asking how much does force production drop. The other thing you can do, which is even gnarlier, is you can stimulate the motor cortex of the brain to actually then see whether the brain is sending a signal to the 
to the muscle, right? It's incredible. So it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. <laughs> and what they found in that particular study is that when you do the 4K time trial, your peripheral fatigue drop-offs are much larger than when you do the 20 and 40. So in other words, your muscle Plus is more the- fatigued, whereas when you do the 20 and 40, then the fatigue seems to be less in the muscle because that drop-off before and after wasn't as large. I think it dropped off after the 4K, I think it was like sort of 15% lower. After the 2040K, it was sort of 8 9% lower. Hmm. Whereas when you do the long trial, the transcranial stimulation method showed that there was more central fatigue in that condition than there was in the short. So the duration of exercise changes the balance hmm. between is it in the brain, is it in the muscle? But it's never 100-0. That you yes. asked earlier and I didn't answer it is how much is brain, how much is muscle? The answer is it depends. Yes. And what the Ansley study because showed the shorter, is di- the shorter distance itself doesn't doesn't need carbohydrates and glycogen and those things. And it's got less of a heat problem. Right, so what, yeah. what then starts to take over is the metabolite constra- constraint because that trial lasts five and a half, six minutes. <laughs> it's really high intensity. At those high intensities, that's where the phosphates, the hydrogens, the metabolites start to compromise muscle function directly. Mm. When you do it longer, you get less of the metabolites, more of the substrates, the heat, the mechanical, mechanoreceptors and so Mm. forth. So that was a really elegant way to almost conclude this and say, even the duration is going to affect where the fatigue looks to be. But it was never zero 100 is is I guess the point. It's always split between the two. Fascinating. Well, I hope you got a chance of uh, really understanding a little bit about fatigue. And as I say, we'll do um, something around fatigue resistance in an upcoming podcast. Uh, but thank you again to Professor Ross Tucker. And from us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.